0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kibalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim Iraqoidish. I'm Avram Kibalevich. You know, we've been talking, Dr. Juni, about fundamental, about something today which is primal, even more primal than getting into your car, which is what you put into your mouth specifically in terms of nutrition and food. You know, in terms of COVID, uh, the COVID lockdown generated great changes through uh, over the whole uh, gamut of society, uh, how they were eating. In fact, there was a joke, I think a couple of months into COVID, COVID COVID-19, there's the COVID-35 or 25 which was the amount of weight people were gaining because they weren't as active. Uh, they weren't walking up and down as much. And because of that, they were staying home. And, and and perhaps because of anxiety and other issues, zeroing in on comfort food to gain weight. And even as the year has stretched on, although there has been uh, around 15% of people have lost weight and maybe even considerable amount of weight, Maybe recognizing in a heightened state, uh, how important it is not to have that extra pounds on you. A good 35% of the population has been gained is still gaining weight. And part of that, I think, is exacerbated by, um, the lack of regular food items for people who are on the dole, people who, who, who need food banks and other sort of chesed uh, organizations to provide the food for them. Well, <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. And therefore, where they might have been able to afford a certain sort of gourmet type of diet up until now, things have altered. And therefore, you, they are eating what they can. But I really, you know, so clearly, the idea, you know, turning to the knives and forks on the table and, and eating has become something that, in some ways, has become even more essential. Uh, It's almost, I guess, uh, uh, the little bit of normalcy that we can hope for uh, eating. And yet, uh, I I think this could give us the excuse, at least as we're talking, to hear your thoughts about uh, the centrality of what that means, even obviously beyond COVID, beyond the stress situation. Why is it that uh, uh, eating which of course is essential to just the living is more than that why is it that it becomes so packed with um these type of sometimes aggression and sometimes it, it you might even say the worst habits of a person comes out while they're eating which you which aren't necessarily on display in another way all right that's that's what i'm putting on your table Uh, Can you please masticate this and uh, uh, give it to us with some clarity about what you feel is going on psychologically?
1: Okay, so you're you're attributing to my efforts here also as an oral effort, so I'm not willing to own that in terms of mastication. But sure, let me react. So first of all, there's two ways to look at the – let's talk about overeating as as the simple um, um, exemplar of what happens to most people during lockdown – and there's, there's two ways to look at it. Um, from a behavioral perspective, essentially um, eating is something that people would do absentmindedly as well. Sometimes, let's say, um, uh, people who um, work with a pack of donuts next to them will just find themselves absentmindedly devouring the entire box. Or I know people, I mean, I've had this problem I once had some significant problems with my heartbeat, and I went to a physician and we just talked it through. And it turns out that there was a pot of coffee right next to, in those days, it was a typewriter. And I would down like 12, 14 cups of coffee, non thinking. So it's just there, your mouth is there, and it's almost reflexive. It definitely is an in infancy. It's reflexive. We don't think about it. So when you're near food and something else is going on, automatically you just automatic gear, and you keep going. So behaviorally, we can just say what's going on here is that since pe- people are not in their cars, they're not at meetings, they're like two feet away from the fridge. So you just go to the fridge when you have nothing better to do or to the pantry and just stuff up. That's the simplistic um, uh, explanation from a behavioral perspective. I think dynamically, especially from a psychoanalytic point of view, there's a lot more to be said there. So let me pontificate about that a bit. Um, the, the, the root of development of personality, according to psychoanalytic theory, is a paradigm which is known as psychosexual theory. And um, psycho essentially means the body. I'm sorry, um, psycho means the mind, or really <laughs> the soul, the soul, which is you know the, the, the uh, traditional uh, Greek definition And sexual means body. It doesn't mean sexual satisfaction, although it's one aspect of the body. So when Freud formulated psychosexual theory, what he was saying was that we are programmed to go through a certain stages of bodily development in the beginning of from infancy until into early childhood. And each of those stages of bodily development carry with it. An entire template for the development of personality. So, specifically, um, the very first stage that a child is exposed to is that of the eating stage. It's called the oral stage. And essentially, sure, that the child is pretty helpless, can't do much for him or herself, and is dependent on a um, maternal, usually, or a supplying, supporting figure who gives them what they need. And in terms of psychosexual development, that is the period where the template of personality concerning basic relationships with other people, you're no longer in the womb, you're no longer yourself in this entire semi-world, you're now an entity with others and you're interacting with them, and depending on the nature of the interaction you can do very well in terms of getting your satisfaction and your support. Satisfaction, basically, at that stage is defined in terms of um, being held, that feels comfortable, being cuddled, being fed, being warm. It's, that's the overall paradigm. So it's fe- the feeling of safety, the feeling of security, the feeling that there's somewhere there taking care of you, etc. cetera. And you can see how this becomes part of the basis of personality uh, to the point that they say that if you have hassles at any point in development, the worst kinds of hassles you can have is at this stage, because you never learn to be secure, you never learn to really trust other people, you never learn to trust fate, or parents, or God, or nature that will give you what you want, and it can develop into some basic issues. Okay, so it stands to reason then that if you, you are in a situation where your very survival feels threatened, okay? You feel that, uh, we don't know what's going to happen over here, I don't have a mother to turn to, I am not um, connected enough with God to feel that I can just rely upon God to take care of me. You start feeling very insecure. And what happens then is that instead of having the personality developing from the Sexual or from the body function, you have a reversal that your personality or your interpersonal or psychological needs revert back to the physical exemplar by saying, okay, so I'm going to get back to that matzah of being totally reliant on kind supporting figures in the terms of its basic icon, which is food. So essentially, the eating is supposed to be almost a magical elixir that gets you back to supplied dependency needs. That's the official thing, which includes security, which includes feelings of being taken care of, feelings that there is somebody worrying for you. So if you want to look at it from a very primitive perspective, this is a cry for help to mommy or a cry for help. To God, if you wish, if you a little bit think of it more maturely, but it's a basic cry. I remember like the a Rebbe once tried to express what davening with the lulav is. He says, you're davening non-verbally to God by shaking that lulav. And he really looked at it. If you ever watched him, instead of saying something, he was shaking it. And I remember Rabbi Salvejik saying the same thing about davening with the shofar. In other words, use the chauffeur to daven, use the cry of the chauffeur as a way of connecting. So here too, we're using food in a primitive way to say, get me back, get me back to the situation where there is a kind person who takes care of me and my needs are so simple. And I can rely on that hopefully in terms of my conscious, That's a dynamic interpretation. And um, that's the best way to explain overeating from a psychoanalytic point of view. That's not to say that it's an either or here. It's both. There's no question that if you were to have nothing in your pantry and nothing in your fridge, you would not eat between meals because there was nothing there. Okay? But instead of the behavioral perspective saying that it's being done unwittingly, the dynamic perspective is that that it's being done, at least subconsciously, in a very pointed, directed, intentional way saying this is my way of symbolically asking for help or trying to get back to a situation where I know they'll take care of me. It's like being kicked out by your wife and going back to your mom and saying, I'm back on the couch, let's have some soup.
0: Right. And, and we know the society even uh, has names for these types of treats and ice cream and candy and other things. They call it comfort food, right? Comfort sure. food. And it's even marketed that way. Because it seems that, and again, probably a a person who's into brain science and nutrition can say that those sugars and other things that are, that are so, that these foods are so rich and packed with somehow reach certain brain centers or nerve centers in your brain that elicit the idea of that uh, primal comfort that the mother's milk once gave. Um, you
1: know, so I just say that conceptually what you're raising is an alternative interpretation of psychodynamics. You're saying the same thing, but you're looking at the brain encoding of that rather than the psychological encoding of association, which is you're saying the same thing, although using a totally different paradigm.
0: Well, I, I assume, and I, and, and, and you're one of the people that inspires me to to, to entwine these two things. Because we know that it isn't just the, the, the psychological need, there's also what happens physiologically in the person's brain that that that, that is probably sure. turned on in the same way. So I, I assume they go hand in hand. They might be well, they're parallel or maybe even two
1: ways of really looking at it. You know, whether you're looking at it from the top or the bottom. There has to be a correlation because we all know that our emotions are closely Tied to physiological processes. So right. chicken and egg is a question that we don't have to get into here. But sure, both are legitimate ways of looking at it. Okay. And both, by the way, are also legitimate interventional modes. Because when you look at people who are involved with dealing with overeating, there are two different approaches, whether you start from the egg or the chicken, so to speak, without knowing which is the chicken and which is the egg. Okay, so, sure.
0: so let's talk about that in a minute. Because I do think that the COVID-30 or 25 or 30, whatever it is, is going, as we say, it's affecting 30% of of, of of people, maybe 30% of our listeners. I think that's worthwhile to discuss. But before we get there, let's talk about something, a, a trope. And it's going to sound maybe sexist, I don't know. But you always hear about when, um, you know, they, they have this idea, which I've seen on television, about uh, like women... Uh, who are upset, uh, who now gravitate, uh, towards the ice cream, you know, that they finished off, uh, a, 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 a huge amount of food, um, when they're upset. And I can tell you that I sometimes feel the same way when things are frustrating to me in some, in some fashion, I find my brain somehow a thought in my head saying, Hmm, where's the chocolate right now? I think that perhaps that's going to make me feel better. Um, and And it, it, you know so we do have this idea of of of, of even knowing when we 're doing it that it 's wrong because we know it 's going to affect it 's going to might give us cavities it 's going to put uh, some extra uh, girth on the spare tire, and yet we can sometimes say i don 't care i 'm doing this, and is that just really a, 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 what, what you were talking about before that I, I I know this is probably bad for me, but I feel I need. The emotional brain comfort or whatever it is, psychological comfort of of just feeling the enjoyment of food now because I'm disappointed with other things.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's definitely again, I'm gonna give you the split between the manifest and the psychodynamic. Manifestly, you definitely get that from patients. And I don't I have not treated any patients who are particularly overeating due to COVID simply because I avoid patients like the plague now, except if I see them remotely. But I have seen people who've gone in for bariatric surgery in in terms of their their, some who had some psychiatric difficulties and uh, connected with that. And there's no question that is definitely a dynamic that at least let me get what I can because nothing else is accessible. But I want to point out something else, which is a really strong dynamic. And that is that it's not that uh, I know it's wrong and that's why I'm doing it because it's so important to me. There's another aspect here and that is deliberately making yourself miserable and making yourself misgained. we call it in in Hebrew, Um, uh, pathetic, that's not the right word. Somebody who's deserving of compassion. In other words, if I really knock myself mistreat myself, um, um, let go of any kind of boundaries, and I get fat and undesirable and even sick, that psychodynamically increases the chances of somebody taking care of you. I can tell you a personal incident, and I was a really young kid once, and I was constantly getting kicked out of class. It was like my middle name. And I remember once I was kicked out and I was really in trouble, And I found myself, well, okay, I was a young kid. Let's say I was in third grade, okay? I found myself picking my nose, which is, you know, okay, fine, a habit. And my nose started bleeding. And I said to myself, wow, this is good stuff because now there's (laughs) no way they're going to call my mother because they're going to call the nurse and they're going to feel sorry for me and I'm off the hook. And in a kind of um, odd way, this is a way, if you take yourself and let go of yourself and start making yourself into somebody who is not so functional, you are essentially letting yourself off the hook. Like, you can't expect anything of me. There's no way I can do things. Somebody has to help me. Look, I obviously can't take care of myself. Look how I let myself go. It's uh-huh. it, it sounds a little bit um, so, so paradoxical it's... because we assume most people want to be in good shape, but sometimes getting sick is almost a good feeling because now, ah, leave me alone. I have no responsibilities. You can't blame me for doing things after all. Look at me. And then unconsciously that my mom or God come in to help
0: me. Uh, you know, this, this reminds me, uh, Dr. Jay, of things that I had to train myself or be trained in when I started teaching in a certain school and there was incidents of children that were cutting themselves Children that would uh, when when pressure built up a- academic pressure or family pressure, I would I discovered a number of my students had been wounding themselves uh, cutting and that sounds a little bit like what you're describing. Um, uh, it, it, it's not as pleasurable as uh, downing uh, a whole uh, uh, box of chips ahoy, but it sounds mm. like a similar thing because it's it's a way. That when we discover the behavior, because it's not really meant to be hidden. In other words, when we discover pretty soon that there are wounds all over maybe the, that person's body, what we're going to be more concerned about is their health and their welfare, as opposed to the big issues that they couldn't cope with. Is, is it possible those, uh, these things are related?
1: Okay, so I just have to tell you that professionally, cutting is a different league. It's a different league and it cannot be explained clinically solely in trying to appear or to make sure that people know that you need help. Cutting is often done by people where it's never discovered and they would feel horrified if it was discovered. That has to do more with a way of um, controlling your own impulses by inducing pain. It it, it really is in the clinical phenomenons. I don't, there definitely are people who will hurt themselves as a way of quote. In suicide, yes, there are people who do, cutting in suicide is not the same thing, but there are people who uh, commit suicide with the unconscious hope that they will be rescued. The problem is that often they miscalculate or it's not well enough conceptualized in their uh, conscious to make it work. So often many of them die. I've often told patients, even if somebody is doing this for attention, you better get them hospitalized because they're not the best experts in how not to kill yourself. It's hard to do. But cutting is, is really a different phenomenon. There are some people who cut as a way, of, and they do it in a way that others should discover it. Like they leave the the razor around, or they leave some blood stains lying around, and then somebody discovers and helps them. But that is usually not the dynamic, okay. unfortunately. So it's a good idea. It just clinically is not born
0: out. Oh, like I said, I, oh, oh, what I we, I believe me, I tried to just help these students and get sure. them the right people they needed. I it just seemed like a cry for help is what you were saying. You know, one of the things that that. That, that seems clear from the way you're... You know, de- I, would
1: say, I would say a nice typical cry for help from school is failing courses. Many people fail even though they have the capacity to pass simply as a way of calling attention to their need for help. Some uh, people will actually make um, real trouble, let's say, in the marital relationship as a way of trying to call for help, not because they want to mess up the marriage, which is kind of, you know, it's odd. You think, oh, if you do that, you're just an irresponsible philander. Or what's with you? And that's not always the dynamic. The dynamic is always, look, look how helpless I am. You have, somebody has to come in here and help me. So, sure. I'm sorry for intruding. Go ahead.
0: No, no, no. Your, your point, I'm trying to process it. I think that one of the things that, that is a common strand here is that uh, let's talk about the binger who, whether it's a, a man or a woman who the relationship's not working out get me to the ice cream part of it is um there's hard work when it's interpersonal there's hard work of reading the signs changing yourself having the conversation um and and therefore going straight to the to the bucket of of ice cream is a lot easier it doesn't demand altering altering yourself or using Social dynamic. It's it's like you say. It is it, it very much is devolving into a very primal. I'm a baby, and this is what I'm going to do. And this, in a way, feels although I realize, like you say, it'll it'll hurt me, and it, it, it might even hurt me tonight. But right at this moment, this is a very good um, exit from a difficult interpersonal situation. Sure. So. Sure. So you know, let's talk about what you were touched on before, and 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 I, I and I have to tell you, as a teacher in high school and in and in, in older uh, grades, um, you know, we are all very familiar with uh, I don't know what it's called, fat shaming, where people who are because even it might even be because of their metabolism, it might be because of. You know, it, it isn't that they that their 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 friends and and, and and on the schoolyard uh, eat so much less than they do. They just are for some reason are not able to to because of whatever the DNA that they've been blessed or cursed with. They don't have those type of bodies, and they aren't able to to expung, expel the the calories in the same way, and because of that. They are, you know, you know, uh, derided and and turned into pariahs uh, and and made to feel terrible uh, for their not not only for their looks but also for their eating habits, and um, those people again, you know, are obviously when they become adults, um, they are also in a situation where the pressure of society to slim down the pressure of society um you know uh, in terms of the nicknames and things like that are, are, are very strong um now w- would you say that from your perspective before we get to people who really have a, a problem with overeating would you say that the, these people um in a in a more healthy real way from the way you're looking at it should just be left alone um mm.
1: Okay, so let me, I want to just have several points. I'm not sure I'm right on target of where you want to go with this, but I have several points here. Number one, I think it's just interesting cross-culturally, the kinds of problems we're talking about right now would not be problems 150 years ago. I mean, then let's say even in terms of women, right? A real attractive woman is one who is heavy, one who is zastic, right? The idea of slim people, the idea when when um. Oh boy, Twiggy came out, I went, remember. Sure. It was such a shock to the, uh, to the uh, shall we say, sexual culture of this world saying, what are we doing? This is precisely what you don't want. You want somebody who's all... Okay, so I'm saying that's just interesting. Um, again, I was thinking of, of a, a, a psychodynamic paradigm, and I, I, it's building on what I said earlier. Just humor me for two minutes. I, I want to just explore this. Um, essentially, when we talk about the development of personality, as it's modeled or as it's anchored to various kinds of bodily processes, you start with dependency, okay, which is related to food. But the very next stage is one of autonomy, one of dealing with authority figures. The next one is one of identity. And the next one is one of relationships. We're already up to age um, 9, 10, 11, okay? And what we basically have here is that people who are fixated or hounded about their eating habits or whatever and they run back to the ice cream, essentially are regressing or escaping from higher levels of relating, higher levels of development, one of which is interpersonal relationships. So psychodynamically speaking, it's almost like you can't relate to people or being involved heavily in the meaning of relationships and at the same time be involved heavily in food, so to speak. So that regression is really a regression of personality, so to speak. And I think it was quite insightful when you said, "Look, I can't deal with the intricacies of relationships, but I can deal with ice cream or chocolate." In other words, you're basically regressing to, to a simpler mode. It's much easier to deal. I want food. I don't want food. I like it. I don't like it. Re- than the, the intricacies of interpersonal relationships, which is more like yes, no. It's it's complicated. There's a give and take, there's consequences, or you can go somewhere in the middle. I'd rather deal with positions of authority. Who's the boss and who isn't? And you think of some kids, let's say, who avoid responsibility by getting into fights with authority. That's not as regressed as talking about food all day and dealing with eating and eating more and eating less, but they are stuck on, who, you can't tell me what to do. The teacher told me she's right, she's wrong. Okay, that's another stage. So, again, we're dealing with developmental progression, and the more you find it difficult to deal with real-life social challenges, the more you'll go backwards. So you'll be for somebody who's a pain in the ass, and then eventually, if you really have to go backwards, you're going to be somewhere that the whole topic focus is how much you eat, how much you don't eat, how fat I am, how fat am I not, I'm being fun of, of, what am I being made fun of or whatever. So it is just basically a straight one-dimensional continuum that goes up there where people get pushed to shoved one and the other, but the bottom line is still, the hotter the seat becomes, the further back you go to get your anchorings. It's almost like the hotter it's, the higher requirements and it's getting unbalanced, the lower down you go. To get some stability. So it,
0: it really is a what we call a difficult gyro, I mean, for the child that I described before, and if we trace the person's arc into maturity and adulthood. So here's a person who, even as a child, was forced to sort of like, it wasn't just running away from the normal social interaction. Because of the fat shaming and because of the sense that he's different, because of the fact that there's something wrong with them, that person had to deal with a lot, a, a much more complex interpersonal relationships than just knowing how to share toys. Right? He had to be told you eat too much. He had to be told that hey, there's something wrong with him. He had to be told with. But it also means that he will not
1: master sharing toys well, because he's too busy at square minus one.
0: And and that is something that society is really, in, in a sense you know guilty of because those are the messages that these his his playmates are getting from home and those are the messages that they are putting towards this child so just bear with me for a second as the child gets older and becomes someone who knocks on Sam Juni's door and says look i'm overweight and i'm unhappy and I, I i diet but it doesn't work i mean this might be someone who the 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 root cause might be some gene or some aspect of his metabolism that didn't kick in like everyone else, and now he's he's in this arc of 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 depression and failure, and now he comes to junie's door and he says look you know i I'm trying to diet, et cetera and even when junie looks at him, junie says, "Yeah well you know junie' trying to be dispassionate, but junie also can't help but notice. Uh, the fact that uh that he has to wear uh triple size stretch pants, and you know this seems to be uh you know, he, you know when we start talking about him as sort of a psychological specimen it it, it seems something seems quite cruel because so sure, uh, in, in
1: terms right in terms of the societal but i just think of this absurd example let us let us say that a certain individual is beset from day one about exactly how his button lines up with his chin. I mean, something as ridiculous as that. He's going to develop some severe developmental problems because he has no room to focus on anything else. He's always going to deal with his button and his chin and constantly trying to line it up, and there's no room for anything. So here we're picking on something which essentially is healthy. I mean, I often tell parents that you're costing the kid much more than obesity would cost them. You know, you are causing a problem over here. You know, things will eventually settle. There's often that puberty, there's quite a shift in terms of the me- me- metabolic balance, which does people, some people, some good. But at any rate, you don't harp on it. You know, or people who hassle kids about biting their nails. as something as trivial as that. You can really mess up an entire re- developmental process because you get the kids stuck and they never get, I mean, Hassle somebody about biting nails, you can be guaranteed they will not master interpersonal relationships as well as they could have. Or maybe not even at all if it comes with all kinds of messages. You bite your nails and you're going to get warts and you're going to die. I don't know what to tell these people. High sugar level, just like your grandfather. You can really freak people out. Sure. And the point is when push comes to shove, that kid will say, forget it. I'm just going to eat. Just as COVID is a push kind comes to shove where people say, I'm going back to eating Sure,
0: and, and 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 as as we say, I mean, obviously, part of what COVID has done to all of us is um, allow us to look at our habits and say, "How can I be the most healthy person I can be?" In order that if Chas I get this thing, that I will have the mm-hmm. greatest resistance to it. And I think people who uh, who have a weight issue, uh, whether it's whether they are uh, medically termed obese or not. I think are are looking at that and are saying, hmm, how can I muster up the self-discipline to to withstand, to and, and, and this is sort of, you know, when we talk about from a religious standpoint, like we, we we've had discussions about changing yourself, changing bad habits. And part of it is the belief from where I'm coming from as a rabbi, and I know you believe in it in some way, that you do have the ability to Create a goal that you believe is very high and you know it's going to be tough, but you keep working on it mentally and saying, yeah, and maybe admitting that your struggle is harder than someone else's. Part of the thing I think is is that 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 you know when we talk about our our, our little pudgy fellow who ends up being having that 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 arc of difficulty, I think part of it is to own up and say, look, you had it harder than other people. And it wasn't fair that your parents, you know, but we're not, it's not about fair. It's about being realistic about the the gift of life that you have. And despite whatever sort of setbacks, whatever they are in the psychosexual realm, to realize that there is a path for you. It might be a lot harder than somebody else, but you have to encourage yourself and have others encourage you that you're able to do it. And and perhaps recognize that it was tougher for you than it is for other people. Um, you know, I know that uh, my wife used to watch a program uh, called The Biggest Loser. And mm. it was a show about overweight uh, men and women. My daughter always said, if you notice, they all have pretty faces, despite their bodies. And they became reality stars. And the question was, who could lose the most weight? And it was it, it went over you know a whole year, and you would get into their stories and of course, the person that lost the most weight would it would, would, would be would be uh loved and would get this incredible million dollar prize. Mm-hmm. but everybody would say it was all worth it in terms of the struggle in terms of where they became and and, and despite the commercialism and and the sort of gross aspect of the program, I thought at least it it, it indicated. A, a sense of respect towards people who have a more difficult uh, burden to, to work with. And I think that, um, you know, I think that's something that society, instead of fat shaming, and I think there's the idea of, yeah, encouraging and being, being, uh, being positive without necessarily being judgmental. That's a hard thing to do, but go ahead. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, People are always judgmental, so let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) I want to throw in a certain nuance here in terms of the eating in in face of COVID. The way I see it is that people who tend to just let themselves go are, in a sense, throwing in the towel and saying, uh, psychodynamically, you would call it denial, saying, forget it. I'm just going to eat. I don't care about this, even though you may care. I don't care. There's nothing I can do about it. And a, a clinical uh, like um, parallel that I can think of is during the AIDS scare, which in retrospect was not as bad as this is now. But I remember the the AIDS scares. This is basically I'm going back to the 80s in the in the 80s. So I, I, I dealt with many AIDS patients. In fact, I was in charge of a major research project with AIDS patients in the hospital. And what I found among some people that, who were at risk of getting it is a tendency to go out and get themselves infected, if you can believe that. It was a common tendency. Now, I, I, not. It wasn't a majority, but it was something that many clinicians picked up, people who deliberately engaged in very risky behaviors, whether it be um, drug-related drug or sex-related, and it's not as if they didn't know the risks. They almost did it deliberately. I'm deliberately going to share a needle, if you can imagine that, because in a sense, that's liberating. Once I've crossed that threshold, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And in the sense, people who just say, I'm not going to be healthy. I don't care. I'm going to overheat. I'm not going to wear a mask. Usually a lot of it goes together, by the way. I'm not doing any more self-care here. And then I am exempt because once you pass that, you're exempt. Nobody criticizes anyone when they're already below, you know, below the bottom line. So that's a kind of dynamic, which is... Kind Even of though they know
0: that they're probably on their way to the ICU of the hospital and maybe... Yes,
1: yes. but now they're no longer accountable. Nobody, the dealing is not anymore, how can you do this stuff? Now you're already at a different level. How can we maintain... Your oxygen level, your keeping you alive, your bodily fluids. It's a different... But in a sense, it relieves them of responsibility, right? It's done. I have nothing to be afraid of. What am I afraid of? Nothing. And that's it. Again, it's not a very adaptive way of looking at things, but sure, it's there.
0: Let's end today with another um, rabbinic nugget, in a way. Um, one of the things that I know you're familiar with when you learn uh, the Talmud is that you see that the eating habits of Chazal we're very different. Now, obviously, they didn't have the convenience that we have in terms of going to a food processor or taking stuff out of a refrigerator. But if you notice, and you know this from Gomorrah's in the beginning of Arve Psochim and Gomorrah's in Brochos, Gomorrah's in the first pair of Shabbos, meals lasted a long time. Like they would spend hours in a meal, right? A meal, the way you know, and I've had baruch Hashem meals at your house and I know, uh, and, and you've had meals at my house. I understand the way we both eat and I understand the way society, we eat much quicker, much faster. Um, you know, McDonald's was famous for introducing the hard back chair. In other words, you would go into the McDonald's. They'd make sure that the chair that you were sitting in was basically uncomfortable because they wanted you to finish within a half hour max and get out of there to bring another person in to give a uh, to give the uh, uh, the big mac to and 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 i think in general the idea of fast food or even when we're home of eating so quickly of, of having it ready and it's over within 30 45 minutes in the time of the rabbis and the time of the talmud meals would last for hours and hours and it doesn't mean that we're talking about like the romans who would gorge themselves and then, you know, and then you know, spit everything out. I think they, they probably ate the same amount we did, but in, in in smaller amounts over a more extended period of time. And let me make that a little bit even stronger. It, it would also be a, a, a place where there would be a whole dynamic of interpersonal connections while you were eating, right? You'd be sitting with someone nibbling, talking and you'd be the couch below you, the couch above you. There would be a whole process of where it's not just, "Mm, I'm eating, I don't want to talk to you. Eating and the social aspect, the conviviality, and even sometimes the important signals that indicate a relationship getting stronger could happen during meals, as opposed to this is when I have my body taken care of. And, and, And I'm wondering, maybe I think the French... Again, I know nothing, but I think my idea of, of the of the continent and of France and other places is that meals are more like that. They aren't this type of, you know, rush. I'm rushing and rushing. Okay, now I've got to go eat, and now I just go into the zone. And I and I, as I'm going to use the Yiddish word fres. Do you think it's possible that you know, as we as we contemplate a post-COVID world, then maybe, it, or, or we could change that as well. Maybe. Eating could be in a more leisurely and relaxed way where I think it's healthier and you don't have the sense of conflict. Just want to get your input on that.
1: Yes. I'm basically, I just want to tell you an anecdote, which I found interesting. Um, We, I mean, my wife and I have been like New Yorkers for a long time and eating like not McDonald's, but McDonald's style. You knock it off and you go off to your next thing and you have your next meeting. And we once had an uncle over from Amsterdam and we took them in those days. It was a kosher restaurant called Moshe Peking in Manhattan, which sure. served like, Yeah, it was a fa- Anyway, we went there and we booked it. We had a certain amount of time we booked. The meal took four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. We were freaked out. You know, order a drink, take it easy. You know, no, we'll order this first. We'll decide later. And we couldn't quite relate to it, but we got to know them well and i have to say we have spent 4 hours with my aunt and uncle other times but we got to know them in a different way which again gets me back to everything gets me back to freud okay but the point is you're using the basic um currency of food as a way of cementing something that's far more sophisticated but you're anchoring it in a very basic need so now it's not just some kind of theoretical shall we say sanitized relationship you have with someone it's brought down to basics it's almost like can you imagine your relationship with your mother without food i can't you know even though my relation my mother was quite you know uh, warm and profound but again it doesn't go without stuffed cabbage that's part of it Okay? okay by the same token what's happening now is that essentially we're being um um having our arm twisted, that basics become much more of an issue to us in our life, rather than abstract business relationships or ventures, because food is so close by. There's a chance here of re-anchoring that in something, and then also, by chance, washing the other way from the basics to make the relationships more basic so to speak like you're you're blending the two together i you know it's a i i i'm interpreting what i hear you saying and it's it's profound it's profound i have to give you a star for that
0: that's okay finally i get a star but 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 but, but i think you know that that one of the the, the most you know i talked about it being the standard um way we see from the rabbinic literature the way meals went I think all of us have sort of, you know, the Jewish people that are that are involved in this, you know, the seder is sort of like an example of something like that. Sure. Where, you sure. know, you know, you know, how long did your seder go? Right now, we know, take the food away from the seder, you don't have anything, right? You, you, you could, you could say the drushes. Uh, clearly, that's an example. I think sitting at the seder, um, uh, getting to know Uncle Irving again, uh, hearing the stories. All of that, I think, is a very positive way. And I think it it, it, it doesn't necessarily devolve into this overeating freserai. I think it becomes elevated uh, in in a way where I would say you probably, as much as you say I gained a couple of pounds, I, I think you probably gained not only so much in terms of your connections, but you probably didn't eat as much as you thought. You're basically defining here the Jewish and the Italian family. There's no question,
1: Greek to some extent, but Jewish and Italian for sure. But I have something even like like a, a more towards the the, the, um, the outer limit here. The whole idea of having basic godlike ceremonies, kiddush with wine, right? You have many basic marriage with wine. Right, raise blessings with wine, which basically says that many sacraments also get tied into a basic of food as a way of anchoring it, shall we say, in our very basis of humanity rather than something that's abstract out there, which is not so human in its flavor, so it's not just family, it's relationship to to God well, as well,
0: all right, well, like you say, you know as human beings that unlike Moses on the mountain for forty days a night, not needing to eat, this is. Uh, the essence, really, of, of, of how we continue to exist. All right. So I think we've, uh, I don't know what course that was, whether that was the uh, appetizer or the main course. Uh, I don't know if we, we we were able to get through to the dessert, but we definitely touched the top of this mountain of cheesecake uh, today. And uh, uh, maybe we'll do some more speculation and an oral, in an oral way next time. Take care, Dr. J. That's it for this week, everybody. Um, me- remember all your blessings before and after you eat. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of New Work at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.